Well, if you've been with us in the last month or so, uh, you know that we're working our way through this um, ancient Christian doctrine called the Apostles' Creed. Um, the first week uh, we did this, about three weeks ago, we kind of took a poll on how many of you kind of grew up in a tradition that uh, recited this often. Uh, a friend of mine that comes here that uh, grew up Catholic, um, he was like, I thought that was just a Catholic thing. And I was like, no, all denominations have used the Apostles' Creed. So um, some of us are very familiar with it. Others, others of us are, are really hearing and learning about it for the first time. So um, it was written in the, the second century A.D. to be a, a concise uh, kind of a, a bundled up package, an overview of what it is that we believe as followers of Christ. So it was written so that early followers who didn't have the luxury of having their own copy of the Bible, like most of us have, could memorize and recite the basic beliefs of our faith and then pass it on to other people as well. So we're going to go ahead and start this morning by standing together and reciting the creed. If you could stand with us and just uh, follow along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You guys can take a seat. So when we, when we began the, the series, I focused on kind of the context of the time period, like what was going on uh, in the world, especially in the, the region around Israel when this creed was put together. So the second century A.D. Uh, was a time of very intense persecution of, of this young uh, church, uh, the first Christians. So the Roman Empire um, was persecuting them, uh, but there was also a lot of internal conflicts in, within the church. And so there was a lot of debate going on about <clears throat> kind of the dual nature of Christ. Could he have been fully God and fully man? And there was a lot of um, heresy or false teaching that was trying to say that Jesus couldn't have been fully human as well. And so the, the, the creed was written to kind of correct some of those things. And um, we talked about how it was used um, as kind of a, a baptism statement of faith. So if you're going to be baptized, you would recite this creed to kind of say, hey, I believe all of these things about who God is and what he came to do for us and what it means to be saved. When someone spoke this creed, they knew that they were potentially signing up for a movement that could cost them their life. So it was very serious business uh, to declare yourself a follower of Christ in those times. So today we're going to focus on kind of the second doctrinal statement in there, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. So a couple of weeks ago, Justin uh, talked about the first statement uh, that focused on this triune nature of God, this three-in-one um, nature of him. He, he talked about the verse that says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so we acknowledge that God was both a very uh, personal, intimate father, while also being a, an all-powerful, all-encompassing, almighty creator. 
And so what did it mean in the second century to say that you believed in Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's very important for us to remember, and many of you guys who've read through the New Testament, you've seen the Gospels, um, that, that Jesus kind of had an, an enemy group out there, the church leaders at the time, the Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees, um, by and large, pretty much hated Jesus. Here was this guy uh, walking around claiming to be God, using phrases and titles that, that only God had used. He called himself the great I am. And for this kind of peasant guy who was kind of a nobody coming from this nowhere town, um, stepping out of his father's carpenter shop at the age of 30 and begin going around proclaiming and, and claiming that he was, him, him and God are one and the same, that was just a little much for a lot of those folks. I mean, they watched what he did, and he did do some miraculous things, and it was obvious that his teaching was inspired and, and incredibly um, intelligent and, and with authority like they'd never seen before, but they were really having a hard time coming to grips with Jesus really being the Son of God. He certainly didn't seem like he was anybody special when he was being arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross. He didn't, he didn't look like anybody's savior when he was being crucified. A great example of this hatred is found in Matthew 26. Would you turn your Bibles there? It's page 905 in your pew Bibles. Matthew 26. The second part of verse 663 is where we're going to start. It says, the high priest, this is when Jesus had been arrested and he was brought before the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look. Now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, and they struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So, I mean, this is a pretty intense scene, right? I mean, these guys hated Jesus, absolutely hated him. So when you aligned yourself with Jesus... By reciting the Apostles' Creed, you were aligning yourself against the religious authority of your entire culture. You were guilty by association as being an enemy of the Jewish nation. So that's partly what it meant to, to say this creed at that time. So it's well known that there were a lot of debates about Jesus' identity throughout his ministry, right? So if he wasn't God in the flesh then who did people think that he was? Flip back to Matthew 16, just a, a few verses before that, a couple chapters, I mean, page 891. So Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, starting in verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So the first thing we need to pay attention to here is where this conversation is taking place. It says it is taking place in a, in a city called Caesarea Philippi. Okay, it hadn't always been called that. You can tell that the Roman Caesar came along and, and changed the name of the town. Okay, so he kind of inserts his name on the front end of that city. And it became known as a town uh, for emperor worship. There's this pagan uh, declaration that Caesar was the king and he was Lord and he was the only one worthy of worship. So Jesus knows what he's doing, why he's asking the question he's asking in the town that he's asking it. So he's kind of taking a poll with his disciples and he's basically saying to them, hey, what's the word on the street about me? When you guys walk around and kind of hear people talking in the crowd when I'm teaching, who, who do people say that I am? And most of the answers are, are kind of lumped into this category of somebody being somebody who's been resurrected. So you're like this Old Testament prophet or you're John the Baptist who kind of appears at the beginning of the New Testament, come back from the dead. Okay? So there's all these theories about, about who he is. But then he asked them the question that he'll one day ask every one of us. He turns to them and says, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? To which Peter boldly declares, you are the Messiah or the Christ, other translations say, the son of the living God. And Christ, uh, the Greek word for that was, was used um, to uh, describe a king throughout scripture. So in other words, Peter is saying, hey, Caesar says he's king, that he's Lord, but I'm saying that you are. And again, remember, aligning himself with Jesus meant that Peter was, we already looked at, aligning himself against the church, right? Because they couldn't stand Jesus. Now it's also saying it's aligning himself against the state. And aligning yourselves with either one of those groups uh, or against either one of those groups could, could wind up getting you killed. So that's what it meant to say, I believe in Jesus in the second century. Notice that Peter doesn't say, you're a Messiah or a son of God. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of God. And we see this confirmed throughout scripture. The apostle John, you guys are pretty familiar probably with the beginning of his gospel, starting in chapter one. He says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and nothing without him, nothing has been made, was made that has been made. Then he skips down to verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in that little prelude to his gospel, John is declaring that Jesus was, was a co-eternal being with God. He was co-creator with God. When God was creating, Jesus was creating right there. He's like in nature. He and God are the same. They are one. They are both divine. So back in Matthew 16, when Peter makes this really bold declaration of the true identity of Christ, Jesus doesn't deny it. In fact, he applauds Peter for his bold and accurate description. So how do you think this kind of talk would have gone with the Romans to hear Peter declare that that's who Jesus is and not the emperor? Probably not very well, right? 
So our creedal focus today is on I believe in Jesus Christ. Christ meaning king or savior. Caesar wasn't those things that Jesus alone was. And secondly, it's God's only son. Why is that a critical distinction? Why doesn't he just say God's son? Why is it important that it's his only son? What do you guys think? Yeah, Devin? Okay, so he's unique. There's nobody else like him. What else? That's good. Yeah, Brad? Okay. Yeah, that some people would say that, like, yeah, in, in Egyptian mythology and the pharaohs and stuff, that they were a son of God and a lot of pagan religions. So he's saying, hey, no, that Jesus is the only son. There's no other sons. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the depth of the sacrifice of losing your only child. Not that it's easy to lose any child, but uh, when it's your only one, man, that's, that's, that's a huge sacrifice, right? So that's kind of the second part of this. And then finally, our Lord, and that is a really critical title. And I came across this quote this week by a guy named Chuck Colson. He's a kind of a theologian, went to prison for the Watergate stuff before he became a Christian. It says, in the first century, if you stood in a public gathering and cried out, Jesus is God, no one would be upset. But if you shouted, Jesus is Lord, you would start a riot. Let us be crystal clear about this. Rome did not persecute Christians because they believed in the deity or the God godliness of Christ or that Jesus was the promised Messiah or that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Rome did not kill Christians because they said Jesus is the only way of salvation. Those were religious beliefs that did not threaten the state. But when Christians declared Jesus Christ is our Lord and there is no other, that was a direct attack on Caesar worship and thus punishable by death. So there was a, a very strong intention about why they chose uh, every part of this phrase. They knew in the context of what they were talking about at the time and what that meant to say those things. Did you know that Jesus is, is identified as Lord over 300 times in the New Testament? That speaks to his all-encompassing authority. You see, he doesn't just save us from our sin. That's part of what he does. But he, he demands that we follow him and that we receive him as Lord as well. He demands that we yield our life to his leadership. We are his servants by choice, Right? Remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the first two words of the creed, what, kind of what they meant. We looked at those words, I believe, and we, we kind of took a look at uh, Romans 10, 9 as kind of our pattern. So I want to take a look at that verse again. Remember, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So uh, Paul even focuses on the importance of that speaking that Jesus is Lord here. His authority is ultimate. Do you know why I love him? That this master, this Lord in my life? Let me ask you this question. What does Jesus use his authority to do? 
Here's this person that's got all the power in the world at his disposal. And what does he use it to do? To school's out, right? I don't have to answer questions anymore. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. He, he came to rescue and to set us free. What else does he use his authority to do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he banishes out all other um, lords that you might have had in your life, right? And part of that kind of setting you free and rescuing you, okay? He, he uses his authority to love us, to redeem us, to heal us, to fight for justice and truth in this world. And that's a master that I can trust, right? A lot of people know John 3.16 and can quote it. Remember back in the day, the football games, everybody would have the sign, John 3.16, like when you'd be kicking a field goal. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't know. But who knows what John 3.17 is? Who could quote three, John 3.17? Yeah, Matt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got the first part, right? Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, right? Okay. Good. You were almost there, man. Partial credit. That got me through physics. Yeah, there you go. I literally, I got a B in physics. I don't think I ever solved a problem. I wrote a lot of stuff down, though, man, right? So this is the heart of the father who has all of this authority at his disposal. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Paul says in Romans, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And that is so true. His mercy, his grace draws us near to him because we know the love that he has for us. But don't be fooled. Right? God is not soft. He's not this big teddy bear in the sky. Be careful of taking King Jesus lightly. In fact, what animal is associated with Jesus in Scripture? The lion, right? He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's why some people don't know this stuff. Most of you all do. But like Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is Jesus. <sighs> Spoiler alert, Right? Literally, I talk to people sometimes, they're like, really? Oh my gosh, I had no idea. I got to go rewatch that now. Like, yeah. <laughs> right? Aslan's a lion for a reason. And, and, and really looking at lions is like, I love like going to the zoo. There's certain animals I get kind of excited about looking at, right? But when I go to like check the lion out, like I'm making sure that glass is pretty strong, <laughs> right? That there's a good gap there between me and the lion because as much as it looks like you want to just cuddle up and pet that thing. It's like it could rip you to shreds if it wanted to, right? So we have a healthy fear of Jesus. He's our savior. He's our friend. He's this intimate ally. But he also is God Almighty. And he is coming again 
as a mighty conqueror to judge the living and the dead. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks. So when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, what does that mean to us? So now I want to get it out of the realm of here and down into here. When we say those words, what does it mean to me? Are we really interacting with Jesus like he is our king and our Lord? Or do we treat him more like a genie in a bottle here to kind of answer our wishes? Or maybe most likely do we treat him like a handyman? Someone that we call when we've kind of broken our life and it needs to get fixed. (laughs) Jesus, come over. (laughs) Bail me out, right? Life's a mess. And quite frankly, I've seen more examples of this mentality than I care to count. (laughs) This Jesus as handyman syndrome. I can't tell you the number of people in our almost 13 years of existence now as a church who have kind of stumbled through our doors one Sunday morning because their life is just kind of falling apart, it's blowing up. And usually they've got some kind of connection or relationship with somebody here or, or maybe me uh, from my days in young life or whatever it might be. And, and, and things are just falling apart. Maybe their marriage is in crisis or there's a relationship, boyfriend and girlfriend, maybe that's kind of a mess or their job's a mess. Maybe they lost a job, their finances are a wreck, they're addicted to something, who knows what. And they come and they're looking for something. And maybe it's different for all of them. It might be hope or peace or, or joy or community or just to know that they're loved or maybe they just want to feel like a good person when they come. Maybe they've kind of felt kind of yucky and they're like, I, want to, I need to clean my act up a little bit. And they stick around for a while, maybe a few months, maybe a year. And inevitably, like most of us who go through different trials and stuff in life, what tends to happen is that the dust kind of settles And you kind of get your feet back underneath you, the kind of initial blow that you took in life. And maybe their spouse took them back in, or their boyfriend or girlfriend, they reconciled, or maybe they got a new job, or maybe they've been clean now for a while from drugs or alcohol or pornography or whatever it was their addiction was. And then all of a sudden, when their circumstances start to improve, they just disappear. And you never see him again, except in those awkward moments out in public, right? Hey, you used to come here when things were a mess, right? You see, they weren't here because God is Lord and Savior. They weren't here to worship and adore the one who died to set them free. They were here for what God could do for them, not what they could offer him in return. And guys, here's another spoiler for you this morning, is that this church service is not for you and me. It's not for what we can get out of this time, or what we don't get out of this time. Whether we enjoyed the songs the band played this morning or not, or whether you liked my message or not, or whether we performed those things well, Church exists to worship, to worship King Jesus, to know his word so that we can obey him and we can love him well and love others well, 
We come to honor him with our lives, our gifts, our abilities, our resources, because he is worthy. He's already given us a son who died to save us and set us free from this bondage of sin. He's already done more for us than we deserve to begin with. What more could we ask for? Guys, he is not here to fix our circumstances. He is here to fix us. And when we proclaim as Christ's followers, I believe in Christ Jesus, God's only son, our Lord, what do we do? How does our life reflect what we say we believe? What does faith and action look like in our life? I want to do something here. We're going to put some, some of your responses up on the screen really quick. Here's the question. Because we say we believe in Christ Jesus, then what must we do that reflects our belief? What must we do? So I'm going to get the ball rolling, okay? We must, survey says, love our enemies and pray for them, right? We're going to type that on there, hopefully, okay? What else must we do if we say that we believe in Jesus? There should be a lot of answers. Raise your hands, quick. We must forgive. We must what? Repent of our sins. What else? Love everyone unconditionally. Okay, this is going to be really quick. <laughs> that's all right. If, if we get it, it's, it's fine. We must love everybody unconditionally because that's how he loves us. What else? What else must we do? Serve what? Serve the poor, the orphans, the widows. What else must we do? Yeah. Live in community with other people, uh, other believers, because Jesus exists in community with the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? That's his example to us. Good. What else must we do? Yeah. Work to further the kingdom. Yes. What else? Yeah. We must give. Yes, Eric. You were here last week, right? You listened to Pastor Dave, right? We have to be generous because he was generous. Yeah. Okay, we must suffer as Christ has suffered, right? To be like him, we have to be willing to, to lay our life down. Yeah. We must share the gospel. What else? Think back to our series on the way of Jesus. How did Jesus operate? We must serve, right? We must be humble. We must consider others better than ourselves, right? We could go on, couldn't we? Do we have, are these things optional? Could we look at this list and say, yeah, I like that one. Eh, not that one so much. Yeah, I'm good with that. Nah, not that one. Is that how this works? No. These are commands, right? These are things to be obeyed. Our master, our Lord is telling us, this is what it means to follow me. To follow me, you have to do these things, right? First John says, you, you know, 
you must walk as, as Jesus walked. We have to. It's not optional, right? There's a whole lot of things we, we, we need to do, and there's a whole lot of things we shouldn't do, right? We shouldn't gossip, and we shouldn't lie, and we shouldn't, you know, a bunch of other stuff, murder people, commit adultery, look at other people, I mean, all this stuff, right? We have to live it, don't we? And this is where the Apostles' Creed, I think it's stale, and not, not just the Apostles' Creed, but just Scripture in general. It gets stale in a lot of traditions. Because some of you guys grew up saying the Apostles' Creed week after week after week after week, but your lives didn't line up with what it was you were saying. Or we study Scripture week after week after week, and we don't live it. Our hearts aren't in tune, aren't resonating with the words. Maybe we weren't a part of a church community that was compelling, <laughs> that was on mission for God, and, and that, that fired us up to be passionately following him. Remember, to recite the creed is to align yourself with God's narrative. I believe that those things are true, and so my life looks like this. And when we align ourselves with God's narrative... We also then, we, we position ourselves uh, as, as in opposition to the world's narrative. So whatever the world is telling us then about how we can find hope, peace, love, purpose, meaning, all those things apart from God, we reject that. And we call that a lie. <laughs> and we cling to and proclaim the truth. And then more fully, we believe and embrace the truth and then experience that truth in our life. Those two things, belief and experience, align in a way that resonates and resounds in our souls, in our hearts. And as we walk in the light of this truth, we declare with ever-increasing conviction, I believe. I believe. Whether our culture believes or not, whether our friends, co-workers, whoever the president is at the time, it doesn't matter, right? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Not what is everybody else saying out there, but who do you say that I am? And where is this all heading ultimately? I want you to turn over to Philippians 2 as we kind of wrap things up today. Philippians chapter 2, page 1072 familiar passage for us. <clears throat> Starting in verse 5, Paul writes this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, he being made in human likeness. <clears throat> And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus did those things, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So one day, Paul is saying, every knee will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can either do that now while God's mercy and grace is open to us, to embrace us, to forgive us, to adopt us and bring us into his family as sons and daughters. (laughs) Or we can do it later when it's too late to do anything about our eternal destiny. Either way, we're all going to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. That is saying a lot, folks. And our lives should reflect it. And it won't be perfect, right? We know that. But what God is looking for is desire in us, right? The ruling passion of our hearts is, God, I want to, I want to live like these things that I say are true, and my actions back that up. That we have this ever-increasing reflection of his nature and character to this broken and hurting world. And guys, here's the good news. Is that if that's our desire, if we really want that, we want that alignment between what we say and how we live, that God is committed to making that happen. Scripture tells us that he is our advocate. Scripture tells us that he is, he is praying for us. He is He's thinking about us. He's, he's wanting the best for us. He's, he's shaping us and molding us into the image of his son, bending our will towards his. And he says, guys, I just need you to cooperate with me as I try to do it. <laughs> you know your kids when you're trying to get them to do something and they're squirming and flopping, you know, you're trying to change a diaper, you know, and they're all over. The, nobody's ever experienced that. Okay, I got it. Only my kid, Right. You're trying to get something done here, and they're not cooperating. You're just like, man, if you just cooperate with me, (laughs) this would be so much quicker and a lot less messy, right? I could tell a story now, but I'm not going to because that would just really distract us from... So if you want to hear a funny story about changing a diaper, come and talk to me after church today, (laughs) right? But God, guys, God is, is committed to transforming us into the image of his son. And he's just looking at us. He's saying, man, guys, just keep your eyes on me. cooperate with me here and the spirit's leading is what he's trying to do in your life and i'm going to do this i'm going to shape you into the person that you say you want to be when you confess these things okay so what we're trying to do through this series guys in case you haven't figured this out is we're trying to say what does it look like in our life when i say i believe this when i believe that god is the Father and that he's almighty. What does my life look like that shows that I really believe that? When I say that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, that I believe in that, what does that mean? What does my life look like that shows that that's what I believe? You see, because if you just live it, people will know what you believe. (laughs) Sometimes we say a lot of stuff and people can't figure out, well, are they really serious about that? Because their life sure doesn't line up with that, right? So we want congruence there. So that these aren't just words, right? But it's our life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for just your patience with us. (laughs) 
Lord, when I look at my own life, I look at those things we put up on the list. There's so many of those things that I struggle to do very well or very consistently. And so, Lord, it, it just keeps me humble. It keeps me dependent. It keeps me boasting in my weakness because when I am weak, then you are strong. But, Lord, I know that you, you want to shape us, and so I pray that we would cooperate with you. I pray that we'd quit squirming around <laughs> and that we would rest and be still and keep our eyes on you and trust you as you shape and mold us, these uh, lumps of clay that we are into the person that you're trying to make us. God, it's so hard to get into the context of the second century <laughs> and, and the intensity of that time. What was at stake when somebody said these words in public, their life was on the line. And we lose so much of that in our culture today. And it's easy to come to church and to say we're Christians and get tattoos and put fish on our cars and all these things, but, but then live a completely different way. God, help us to, to line those things up, our, our actions and our words, so that we can reflect you well, God. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?